yet another edition of Fantasy Tavern. Finally back after all this time. And as usual, I am here in my little fantasy nook ready for another deep dive into some pop culture goodness. So, oh, excuse me. I'm already starting with the with the burping. So, I took a week off. As you may or may not know, uh, I came down with whatever respiratory illness has been going around lately because of the hacking aggressive cough and runny nose and other symptoms that I was dealing with. I spent the last week just going to the doctor and trying to figure out what was wrong with me and just taking some time at home to rest and drink a whole bunch of tea and drink a whole bunch of soup and stay away from people. So took that recommended amount of time. Now that that's over, I'm feeling a lot more refreshed and uh, definitely am not contagious anymore. Most of my symptoms have gone away. I've still been kind of left with this cough, but I'm hoping that that will sort of get rid of itself by the end of this week. So not really sure exactly what I had, which was a little frustrating. And uh, not for a lack of trying. I went to two walk-in clinics and I went to the hospital to try and figure out what I had. And after insisting, they finally gave me a swab and sent me for a chest x-ray, which not, and all of that turned up no results apparently. So not exactly sure what I have. So if they didn't turn up any results, I'm guessing it was something that they didn't test for or can't test for with a swab. So I'm guessing, I don't know, maybe a sinus infection, bronchitis, something like that. Uh, possibly this RSV that's been going around. So I'm not really sure. And it had a lot of the symptoms of COVID, but all the tests I took were negative, which was very strange. And I also got a test done at the walking one of the walking clinics that I went to, which was negative as well. So it for sure wasn't COVID, or at least, I don't know, if it was COVID, it didn't show up on any tests, which was very strange. And uh, that's why I'm thinking it was one of these other two or three things, possibly. So ended up uh, feeling a little bit sick the weekend before Halloween, and so started to try and not smoke too much, because I felt like I had a kind of a cough and a, a congestion coming on. And at this point, I had kind of been... Uh, cutting cigarettes out of my bad habits list anyway. So for the last sort of month and a half, I think I'd only had two cigarettes. The there was, uh, and then yeah, I had I finally had one last uh, night, and that was the third cigarette I think I've had in like the month and a half or whatever since I decided to uh, try and quit. But I still am smoking quite a bit of weed, and so I thought that basically maybe I smoked a dirty pipe or bong or something, I didn't clean it enough, or maybe I, I just, I smoked a certain way and it messed up my lungs, so I just have to let it heal, but it just wouldn't go away, and then by Wednesday, I had no sense of taste or smell, so I decided to go to the walking clinic and see if there was something wrong with me, 
And when I got there, they did some other checkup on me, and I had a fever. And so they immediately thought it was COVID and basically sent me away. Uh, They would not do a swab on me, even though I asked. Um, I went to another walk-in clinic. They actually gave me a a rapid test because they won't do PCR tests on anybody anymore unless they are in a high-risk group. So if you're not elderly or like a healthcare worker or something like that, you actually, it's very unlikely you're going to be able to get a PCR test. So you just have to do the rapid test, which is essentially what the walk-in clinic did to me. They gave me a test that I could have just done at home, but at least it was a medical professional also confirming that I did not have COVID. And the first walk-in clinic I went to wanted to give me antibiotics, even though they had no idea what I had. And so I didn't want to take it because I'm not just going to take a random all-purpose antibiotic for something that I can just stay at home and fight off myself. Like, I'm fully vaxxed and boosted. I I think I'm a fairly healthy person. So I didn't want to just take antibiotics for something that it might not even work because you don't know what I have. And then I'm fucking up my immune system more. And it's, it's creating a resistance potentially for when I need the antibiotic for something that it actually will work for in the future, right? So I ended up just getting a nasal spray. So I got this basically no steroids that I've been kind of using sparingly. Just if I have to go out somewhere and it's super stuffed up there still, I just take a little bit of this. And it's been helping. Um, a lot of neocitrin, a lot of Dayquil, a lot of fluids... And just basically staying home a little bit more last week. So that's done now. I'm happy to report that no more fever. My taste taste and smell have come back. And I just sort of have the congestion that's lingering. So that kind of sucks. I'm a little bit older now, so things take a little bit longer to get out of your system. And it takes a little bit longer for people to get over stuff the older they get. So... I just kind of have to accept that and just kind of let it run its course now. Kind of sucks that I didn't figure out what it was so that I could kind of treat it accordingly. But thankfully, the it's it wasn't so bad that I couldn't function. I just needed to stay out of out of public spaces until it was not contagious anymore. Even if if whether it was or not, it's better to be on the safe side because that's the thing. I didn't know if it was contagious. They kept saying it was most likely viral, but there's no way to know for sure. Apparently. So you just have to kind of err on the side of caution. It's better to be more cautious than pretend that nothing's happening and then you end up just doing things you normally do and then you're ending up possibly giving what you have to someone else or you catch something when you're already sick and then you're going to suffer even more. So that's what I definitely didn't want to have happen. But it's all good now. Life is good. Uh, Hopefully... I can go back to at least the audio version if I'm coughing a little bit and edit out any of the coughing or anything like that, along with my newfound skills of editing out all the filler words from the previous episodes. I can now add potential coughing to the list. So (laughs) we'll see how that goes in editing. And yeah, uh, kind of bounced back from that last week pretty strong. Uh, I I got well enough just in time to do an audition on Tuesday, which was really exciting. I'm I'm excited to get back out there and be performing. And I kind of getting back out there looking for more full-time 
hours and stuff like that. Yeah, it's that time of year where we need to make some extra cash. And so now that I'm feeling a little bit better, I, I kind of got out there. I, I just got a seasonal job that I start this week. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to go in for some training and then we'll, we'll get started. I'll only be working there for a few weeks, but you know, something just to make a little extra spending money and uh, put a little extra savings away. You know, things are tough out there. Things are pretty expensive. And this time of year can be kind of rough because, you know, you get invited to a lot of things. You're expected to bring gifts and, you know, you want to maybe decorate the house, buy some extra food for guests coming over, holiday dinners, things like that. And, or if it's not nice out, you don't want to go out, you just stockpile a few extra things in the cupboard. So, you know, those those expenses add up. Have a few extra medical supplies and medications on hand in case you get sick again and you, again, can't leave the house. So I'm kind of trying to get into that mindset of preparation because I think that if you're prepared, then you have a lot better chance of getting through difficult times. And that kind of leads me to, before we get started on today's episode, the uh, next step in the podcast, which I've mentioned in a few previous episodes of monetizing and putting some ad content in some episodes I really would prefer to have it as people that I know supporting their small businesses, their side hustles, um, anything else you have going on. If you have creative projects, any if you're a musician, performer, if you are a crafter, artist of any kind, that's something that I would really like to help support rather than just, you know, some stranger that I'm putting my name out there to, you know, do a collab with, because there's lots of options for podcasters to kind of find sponsors and different other podcasts and other organizations to do collaborations with. And of course, you know, there's the obviously the podcast stereotype where everyone's kind of hawking ball shavers and boner pills, which I really would rather not do. I'd rather not go down that road. At least not yet. And it just seems like since everyone else is doing it, it's not like it's something that's exciting or special, right? So I'd rather have products and services that are are new and, and exciting that people will really want to enjoy checking out um, and offer some kind of discounts and deals. And I'd really like to prioritize products and services that people that I know, friends, family, acquaintances... Uh, so that you guys out there with your side hustles can make some extra money during the holidays. And, you know, a little bit of a symbiotic relationship is always beneficial when it comes to uh, helping out friends and family, and especially this time of year. So please, again, I, I, I always mention this in every episode, but if you have requests for me to give you a shameless plug, if you'd like to appear on the podcast, or if you'd like to send me any kind of video or audio for your business, uh, your creative projects, anything you have going on, uh, you can send them my way, and I will do my best to work it into the show. We only have a few weeks left until all of the big holidays are coming up, so let's get into that spirit of giving and sharing and using different platforms to help each other out. So not only will I feature it on the show, but I can also feature it on all my social media. 
So let me know if you have any sort of print or audio or visual type of things that you want to send my way. It's always nice to help people out and it's always nice to be nice during the holidays. I find that it's a time of year where you think everybody's going to be nice, but people can t tend to be quite nasty. And so let, let's try and, and reverse that and, and minimize that sort of attitude during this time of year. So as you can see, I, I believe I've had this on the podcast before, but the tea mug is ready. It's prepared. And this week's topic is going to involve a lot of tea spilling, references to tea spilling, if you will. I'm, I'm kind of following kind of the stereotype, the trifecta of drinks. So we have a hot drink, a cold drink, and an other. So my hot drink is my tea. I have just like a mint green tea. I need a tiny little bit of caffeine to get through this. Um, we are filming at, uh, as of now, it's quarter to three in the morning. I decided to film now because I didn't really think I was going to have any other reasonable time that I could do it. My roommate happens to be out of the apartment tonight, so I had some extra time to record without anybody here. But I needed to get some stuff done before I actually sat down to record. And then, uh, you guys didn't see this part... But I actually like recorded 10 minutes of me talking about all of the past week being off with being sick and stuff, and then realized that I wasn't actually recording anything. I didn't hit the record button. So that's me being off for a week and still having a little bit of a brain scramble. So now we're, I think, back on track for this episode. So we have our tea. And we have just some water, just some regular old H2O. Sipping on that. And I'm just finishing up a beer that I got recently. Um, shout out to a couple places. I'll, I'll do some shout outs first of all for a couple places in the area. Free advertising, you're welcome. Uh, so this is Berliner Pilsner. Uh, this is imported from Germany, and it is you know, just like a really nice easy drinking, and uh, a nice little big up to German crafted beer, and to Berlin, and this was kind of chosen in uh, honor of the musical that I just auditioned for, Cabaret, which is set in Berlin, uh, and... There's the Berliner Bear on the can, carrying some some glasses of beer, and uh, there's a little slogan at the bottom, Berlin, du bist so wunderbar, and yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, it's like not anything super special, but it's like a nice, well-rounded beer. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with German beer production, a pretty strict system in which they designate and uh, approve different types of beers. So this would be no exception. 
And uh, yeah, just a nice little import. I got this at Starsky's. Uh, Starsky's is like a European grocery store. And uh, uh, I guess mainly Polish. But they have a bunch of other different um, specialty European and um, like world foods. So similar to like a Denninger's or um, like a, like, you know, like a specialty, like, uh, you know, the kind of like a British shop. Um, or like a, a specialty European shop, but it's like an entire grocery store. The place I've never actually been to Starsky's before, so uh, it's uh, it's on Highway Five um, and Hampshire Gate in Oakville. It's kind of like on the Oakville Mississauga border. And if you have a chance to check out a Starsky's, if you're into European food, if you're looking for um, homemade and uh, hard to find. Uh, different things. Um, they have like an amazing hot food counter. They've got every single cured meat and bread and pastry and cheese that you could think of. And then they've also got like a, a pickle and olive bar. Um, they've got uh, a whole bunch of uh, fresh seafood. And then they've got a bunch of different aisles with, you know, specialty European goods. And they also even have uh, a couple shops and a cafe inside the grocery store too. So it's really, really nice. Uh, uh, I grew up, uh, my family's part German. So it was a nice little treat for me to go grab some little things that reminded me of, uh, that sort of part of my culture, uh, and have like a nice little, uh, deep fried pork cutlet and assorted carb meal, <laughs> the other day and that was really nice and um especially because I could actually taste what I was eating so that was great and so shout out to Starsky it's a very nice trip and um next shout out that I'm going to do quickly is to Retro Festive which is the new job that I will be starting as of tomorrow so Retro Festive is a again a small business located in Oakville they have uh, a shop that is just off of the North Service Road. And they are a year-round gift shop uh, specializing in Christmas-themed gifts, but they also just have sort of anything. And it's perfect for this sort of podcast because their um, immediate tagline is sort of geared towards pop culture. So everything in the store, almost everything in the store, is referencing some kind of fandom uh, they've got action figures, they've got things that are referencing to video games, different TV and movie franchises, and different sort of cultural and, uh, like, Christmas-related things, holiday-related things. So they've got um, all the different light-up trees and little displays and nativities and things like that. They've got a whole ornament section stockings, uh, they've got some clothing, different like pajamas and socks and stuff. You can do custom ornaments. And uh, this time of year, of course, is very busy for them. So they've been doing some extra hiring. So I am happy to announce that I will be joining that team for the next uh, month or so, helping out in the back uh, and possibly doing some uh, front of house, some storefront stuff too. But yeah. And I took a bunch of pictures when I was there to get some ideas for gifts uh, and kind of just look around the store and get an idea of kind of where everything is. 
in case I need to, you know, go out there to pick uh, or check on orders or do any, like, storefront if customers ask where things are. It's pretty much got every single kitschy, fun, novelty gift or fandom-related gift, pop culture-related gift that you could think of. All in a, a pretty small space, but they've really done what, they've really maximized the space, and it's kind of just ceiling to floor pop culture goodness. Um, so it was a much-needed serotonin boost, and I am beyond thrilled to be joining that team for, uh, if only a short time. Uh, but I hope that it'll be a good quality experience. So if you have a chance to check out Retro Festive on social media or check out their store in Oakville, please do. And uh, not only that, but at the front they have free cider, free apple cider. So that was very nice too. So I uh, can't say enough good things about them. I'm, I'm really excited for that. So yeah. I think that without further ado, we can start the episode. I've been kind of blabbing on for the last 20 minutes or so, but just catching everyone up on, you know, my life and developments and just doing my little shout-outs first. So let's continue with today's topic. So I don't know what actually inspired me to do this topic. There were a couple YouTubers, a couple YouTubers that kind of put me onto this idea and um, when I started thinking about topics that I wanted to cover, um, I started thinking about the whole Britney Spears thing that's been going on, uh, ending of her conservatorship, and sort of like a renewed sort of concern for her well-being, and Britney trying to get out there and sort of live her life now as, a, as an older celebrity who doesn't have this conservatorship controlling her every action. And then I started thinking about this documentary that I watched a little while ago, actually, and didn't end up finishing. So I went back and watched it. It's called Gossip, and it's a four-part documentary about the rise of tabloid culture in the U.S. So I'll kind of, again, go through that in detail as well during the episode, but it was really interesting to think about the connections that tabloid journalism has and its influence that it's had um, on, our, on our pop culture experience in the Western world. Uh, and tabloids are definitely a thing in other countries as well, which uh, we're going to focus in this episode mainly on UK and US tabloid journalism, which has kind of the most, um, the most sort of Attention that's been, the, the, the spotlight's always shone on the sort of Western tabloid journalism. So we're going to focus on that in this episode. We're going to delve into some of the big forefathers, foremothers of tabloid journalism and kind of how it shifted from print to what we kind of know it now as um, TV and internet as well as kind of the the slowly fading print versions and we'll see how that kind of morphed and and how the people that run these newspapers and tv networks and blogs etc how their connections and their personal biases and leanings can affect an already uh kind of ridiculous version of journalism that we've all come to know and understand. 
So it's just such a fascinating thing and just how, how people get drawn into this form of journalism and how, um, how addicting and how infectious it is. Uh, I, I think I'm remembering as well. So we were talking about, I, it was a conversation that I was having with somebody about, uh, it was, I'm pretty sure it was my roommate. And, um, it was, it was off of another podcast that I was listening to as well, which was about the occult. Yes, I remember now. So when I was listening to this podcast, they were talking about, um, they were talking about how propaganda was a form, a kind of a form of tabloid journalism and how propaganda really influences the historical and political choices that people make. And how, when you think about it, history is just a bunch of dudes, a bunch of old white dudes, usually, uh, gossiping and talking shit about each other until it kind of spirals out of control and then, like, wars and, you know, colonization and shit happens. But you can kind of essentially, some history, because history also is what we interpret and what we are taught as historical fact, uh, people who are successful in history, successful, I'll put in quotes here, is those are the people who are giving us their side of the story. So that's another thing that journalism in general can can have as a risk factor. You have, you know, other external and internal factors coming into effect what is supposed to be uh, an impartial kind of uh, reflection of society, but it becomes kind of the tool for other people's motives. And um, it becomes sort of a, a way to influence popular opinion. But of course, as we've gone into the more modern times, we've realized that tabloids should definitely be taken with a grain of salt and that they are not what they seem in any way, shape or form. It's very much entertainment more than it is actual legitimate journalism. So we'll talk about that and uh, we'll bring up some uh, examples of prominent celebrities and uh, people who have kind of challenged the rise of tabloid journalism because uh, a big critical negative criticism of tabloid journalism is that it it doesn't really take into account the fact that the people that they're reporting on and the stories that they're reporting on can involve real people who have real lives and and the way that a story is spun or or the lengths that different news outlets will go to get a story can result in a lot of personal invasion of privacy and just lead to a whole bunch of mental and physical issues for a lot of the people that, you know, they're nosing into their lives. So I have, once again, the Cato book to give you guys all my notes. I almost didn't find it. I had to clean up my whole room to actually find this fucking book today. I was about to start using my my notepad that I use at my, at my other job to take fucking customer orders at the tables that I just happened to have with me. I forgot to put it back. But I found the Cato book. This is definitely where I'm going to be keeping all of my notes. I don't want them in that other book. It's, it's much too small. 
while it looks a lot more professional, this gives me a lot more real estate for my my crazy unhinged notes, and it's a lot cuter. We we love the cute aesthetic. We don't like the boring gray spiral book aesthetic around here. We like we like fantasy. We like whimsy. We like cute shit, and we like bold. We like drama. Uh, perfect for this episode topic, I think. So, let's get started. I'm just going to take a little sip of my drink here. It's a bit warm. Sibisian warm. Aber ist gut. I say as I chased it with tea. Uh, um, I have another drink here that I might crack open as well. Um, I was trying to find drinks that kind of had, um, names that referenced this topic. So, um, this also seemed like a fitting choice because I feel like brunch is one of the places where we gather to spill the tea very often in modern culture with our friends. So I decided to go for this Collective Arts beer called Daily Forecast, which is a mimosa-style beer. It also has some very cool artwork. This is a collab with Kate Channing, and they are an artist from England. They have different artists that they feature on all the different Collective Arts cans and stuff and bottles, so, excuse me, this is um, a limited edition wrap for this particular beer, which I think is probably also a limited edition beer. Uh, it's pretty low alcohol content, made with fresh orange juice. Um, I'm just going to crack it open and see what it tastes like. Does it taste like gossip? Does it taste like scandal? You, know, you can definitely smell the orange juice. Mm. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it barely tastes like beer. It's basically just like you're drinking orange juice. In a can. Yeah, I'm I'm not mad at that. I would buy this again. That's delicious. Alright, well we're having our mimosa. A, a teeny tiny bit early in the morning, but I think we're okay. Mm. And then for today's snack, um, I went to the grocery store and I re-upped all my seaweed treats, so that's what I'm snacking on right now. Try to keep it a little bit healthy. Um, these things are so fucking good. Very addicting. You kind of just, I don't know, you can use them to actually um, pick up, you know, rice and sushi, and you can use them in soups, or as, like, a garnish on top of salads and stuff like that, but I honestly just eat them straight up like chips, so you can pretty much find them at any grocery store nowadays. They shouldn't be more than, like, two dollars for a pack of three, but, yeah, these are the shit. 
So that's my snack right now. I might break out the chips a bit later, but again, it's a bit early in the morning. I don't know if I want to go eating a ton of food and then after, right after I film this, go to sleep. So we'll try and keep it a little bit um, reserved with the snack intake. So let's get started on our exploration of tabloid journalism and tabloid culture. We'll also be talking about, as I mentioned, the TV and internet transition. Uh, we'll also be discussing paparazzi in this episode, which brings us to our sign for the week, which is a reference to one of the most famous songs referencing paparazzi, I'm Your Biggest Fan. And Lady Gaga famously wrote the song Paparazzi. There's been a lot of other artists who have written songs about called Paparazzi or referencing Paparazzi. Um, as it became in the 90s and 2000s a pretty big um, controversial profession and uh, interactions between Paparazzi and celebrities became pretty epic. Uh, with certain celebrities. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the actual paparazzi part. But let's, as we always do, start with our explanation and definition of what tabloid, tabloids and tabloid journalism is. So a tabloid, specifically the word tabloid, most people's research on the etymology of tabloid, it goes back to early trademarked, an early trademarked term, which is a combination of the word tablet and the word alkaloid, which referenced pills or tablets that you would take at a drugstore. So the word tabloid in reference to a newspaper or to journalism it's sort of referencing the uh, delivery of this form of journalism in a more compact, uh, concentrated, and easy-to-digest style, much like uh, you would want from a, tab a tablet or a pill. The tabloid gave that option to a reader in the early days. So tabloid journalism has been sort of defined as a form of journalism that is extremely sensationalist, that's heavily dramatized, and relies on gossip that is often baseless, rooted in falsehoods, um, when it is rooted in fact, it's generally information that's gleaned from the quote-unquote reliable source. And there's a lot of um, history of tabloids using big payoffs. So they'll get a celebrity or somebody that's in possession of information about a celebrity, politician, what have you, to uh, accept a bribe or a payoff in order to exchange very valuable information, photos, etc., that the tabloid can then use to sell copies of their newspaper or bring in viewership to their TV show, 
their blog, etc. So that's been a big historical reality of tabloids is that there's a lot of money exchanging hands in, in exchange for sensitive information about the rich and famous and influential so that they can have a bigger uh, reader base or viewer base in the on the side of the actual tabloid. And there are a, a couple big players in how tabloids were invented and how they were brought to prominence in the 20th, 21st century. So, as we've seen with all newspapers, newsprint moved a lot more from the printed word to relying more on a visual accompaniment as well as ads. So, that moved as well from the, the broadsheet newspaper to the tabloid, which had a lot of splashy photos a lot of catchy headlines, what we would call nowadays clickbait, and giving sort of the features to the most uh, eye-catching or attention-grabbing stories that they could um, get information for. So this was the beginning of a lot of true crime stories, focusing on like extremely gruesome crime or tragedy stories. Um, They would also have a lot of, again, gossip and scandalous stories about socialites, politicians, movie stars, singers, anybody that was sort of a a famous or prominent person that people would want to read about and and find out sort of dirt on them. That Because what would usually be the case is that, you know, people are working extremely hard at very difficult jobs, the the common person. And there's a lot that, in terms of society, even though there were still, like, newspapers and and journalism happening, a lot of things passed through societies and, and communities with word of mouth. So gossip, in general, even before the tabloid, has always been kind of a vital part of a community or a society is not always a good thing, usually not a good thing, because gossip is generally things that are disparaging about a person that gets spread around. So, you know, rumors and whispers about somebody behaving badly, doing something that they shouldn't be doing, that isn't socially acceptable, that's outside of the image that they've crafted for themselves somebody behaving in a hypocritical manner from kind of how they present themselves to the world and revealing secrets that they would otherwise not want you to know. This sort of thrill has always been at the core of a lot of societies. So just to kind of have that as something that you can carry around with you in print, and I guess having it be in print, I guess, makes it feel more legitimate to people. That was sort of the appeal of the tabloid. Uh, not to mention that the you know the format of the entire thing was made in sort of as we said before, an easy to read, easy to absorb the information quickly, and something that's going to get the readers or the viewers' interest right away. So that the actual words and print and structure of the sentences and length of the sentences and paragraphs wasn't the most important thing anymore. It was how many people can we get to care and believe in 
all of this crazy stories that we have to give them and what's like the most effective, efficient way that we can get this to people and have them keep buying copies. That's sort of what are like the the main criteria of a tabloid. You have news that isn't really news per se. It could be true. That that's the whole and that's that's a big thing that they they talk about in the the documentary gossip that I watched and sort of what the the people who construct the tabloid use to kind of get around any you know um accountability or get around any sort of uh, issues of ethics or morality. You have to always kind of use the right terminology and the right wording. So you never want to fully say that something's true. You want to say that, you know, sort of reliable source says, but you never usually name the source. If you talk about any kind of like experts or medical thing, you want to be as vague as possible. Again, don't name names. And try to give as little statistics or actual link to any sort of factual stuff as possible. You always want to use the the magic word alleged or allegedly. And you want to make sure that everything is very much positioned as, you know, this is... This could be true, but it could also not be. And so we're not fully saying it's 100% true. Even if we have all these photos as well to back up what we're printing, you always have to try and remember that they're going to say, well, you know, that's something that could potentially, it could still be false. We're not saying it's completely true, and therefore we can't be held completely accountable for the things we say. Or, again, the lives of people who we may be affecting. So that's a whole big thing, too. Most of the things, if not all of the things that you are going to read about in tabloids, it's potentially based in a small little sliver of truth, if at all, and then embellished for the the purpose of selling more copies of the newspaper. They're going to try and make this as as alluring as possible. These early tabloids, uh, so in, in the UK, this is where tabloid culture first started, as early as the, you know, as the late, between the late 1700s up to about the mid 1800s, that's kind of when the origins of tabloid newspapers started. They were called scandal sheets and um, satirical newspapers, things like that. And they would also feature comics, um, dubious advertising and classified ads, nude models, or, you know, back before they could show full nudity, you know, just provocative um, pictures of generally women in various, you know, sexy situations, similar like a pinup. Um, it then kind of moved to like bikini models, uh, or nude or nearly nude, topless, whatever they could kind of get away with. Um, you hear about kind of the infamous page six and, uh, how that was sort of a, of the the blue page of the tabloid where you'd see like the naked ladies and sort of the more racy stuff. And then it turned into there being a, a tabloid network or tabloid paper called page six. Um, which I'll look that up. I, I believe it was actually a paper. It was for, it was in New York. Uh, so 
there's, um, again, like, all these different things, not just the news stories, news stories, but there's lots of other things in the newspaper to drag you in, including but not limited to these racy photos, uh, comics and puzzles, and uh, different advertising and things like that. Uh, and as we know, most newspapers, magazines, and, and media rely on ads to survive. So there was always these deals getting worked out with the newsstands and deals getting worked out with different advertisers and sponsors and, uh, you know, always ha having these sort of uh, rich benefactors to come in and keep the tabloid afloat. But there was always these uh, ideas on how to keep things fresh and how to keep readership and viewership up. So this sort of kind of, this delivery method that they were using as well, coupled with the content, was was a perfect, you know, little um, trap for people. that They just get, get drawn to it like moths to a flame because people just can't resist the chance that they're going to know something that no one else knows. And also, then they then you have something to talk about with your friends and family. So there's a lot of different advantages that people saw with the tabloid. Not really realizing that they were kind of getting drawn into a big lie. A lot of people were actually believing these tabloids and taking everything they said to be true. And in the beginning, in the UK, uh, these certain tabloids like the Morning Post, the Satirist, John Bull, and Town Topic, and in the US, the National Police Gazette, these were all early versions of tabloids that were um, helping to coin the term what is known as yellow journalism. So journalism that generally relies on and not exactly truthful news story uh, that's played up and blown out of proportion in order to really be as salacious and therefore as appealing to the reader who's looking for that quick fix of, uh, you know, getting a, a sneak peek into the life of someone rich and famous, that's kind of, they would kind of try to achieve that at all costs. And it was not always the most ethical means of doing that. So one of the big... Uh, kind of uh, origins of tabloid in the UK. And the UK is still known for having some of the biggest and um, most ruthless tabloids that we have come to know in the Western world. Um, most famously, a uh, coverage of the royal family, the monarchy, uh, is usually the subject of the UK tabloids. But they also cover, again, like the most popular celebrities in the UK and in the US generally, Canada and in certain other countries as well. But this all started back in the late 1800s, 1900, where Joseph Pulitzer, who at the time was running the New York world, invited Alfred Harmsworth to oversee the paper and make some contributions and changes. And Alfred Hemsworth then went on to start the Daily Mirror uh, a few years later. This was like a huge tabloid. This was cited as 
the Daily Mirror was is kind of referenced as the first original big tabloid in the Western world. And sort of every tabloid that's come after that, that we know of, has kind of been modeled after this one. So during their time at New York World, Alfred Hemsworth kind of was testing out some of these new ideas and formats and concepts for the newspaper. Uh, this resulted in the reduction of the size of the paper to a more compact format, sort of like the normal newspaper that you see is a lot longer and has a lot more pages of content and removable sections than a tabloid, which is more of like a book. It's a smaller size. There's a lot less content and therefore you can get through it a lot faster and absorb all the information a lot more easily. Um, there's less text to read. And again, it's, it's matched or over uh, exceeded by the more flashy images, some of which may not be exactly accurate images. They could potentially be not of who they're saying they're talking about. Uh, if the photo is not of the greatest quality, it might be hard to tell sometimes if the person in the photo is actually who they're referencing. And sometimes they bank on that because then it's, they can't really say whether or not it is really who they're mentioning in the article. And there's also the whole uh, Photoshop. The photo doctoring has been around forever before it was called Photoshop. So that is also a huge possibility as well. And they also did uh, change, you know, as we mentioned, the amount of print versus photos, uh, creating what they considered a more economical use of the print space, uh, shorter stories, catchier headlines, and they started focusing again more on crime, tragedy stories, uh, stories of like the religiously miraculous, uh, gossip, sports, and comics and games and puzzles. In the a lot of the early tabloids, there was a lot of religious leanings. A lot of um, different members of uh, leaders of churches would start their own tabloids or contribute to local tabloids in order to uh, influence public opinion and sort of put their version of their you know moral relativism and their belief system onto the population at large. And as we'll see. Uh, in both this time and more modern times, depending on who's running the tabloid or who's contributing to it or which celebrities are more influential in determining which stories are going to get out into that tabloid or not get into that tabloid, their personal and political beliefs are going to then come out in this type of uh, journalism. As much as we say that it's supposed to be impartial and fair and not consider those things, there has definitely been a lot of influence of different celebrities and different people who have worked for and run different tabloids that their their personal decisions on how they vote and who they support politically definitely affects which stories get put in that paper or seen on that show and which ones don't. So you can kind of tell pretty easily that uh, whether or not a paper is liberal or conservative or democratic, Republican leaning, or or you know whatever in the in the UK Tories and everything like that. So this, of course, is very problematic because you shouldn't be having certain people influence you with both their 
the threat of their career or, you know, using money to sweeten the deal in certain cases, um, or again, exchanging a story for a story. If you don't like the story they're going to run about you, you can give them a different story for a price or give them another story about a celebrity or a famous person could give them a story about somebody else to kind of take the heat off of them. Um, they can ask to have certain stories presented in a certain way in order to gain public favor for a certain political party or candidate or another. These This happens in, in normal newspapers and, and TV and things like that as well, but certainly if it's the more sensationalist and and false the news is, the the less suggested it is that you should be attaching, you know, a real world political propaganda to that. They should very much be getting kept separate. So that's a huge problem that we'll we'll address a little bit more a little as I go down the list here. So from this Daily Mirror. The paper went on to sell, by 1909, a million copies per day. And it led to other offshoot tabloids, such as the Daily Sketch and the Daily Graphic. And so, by, from the early 1900s up until, you know, the 1960s, 1970s, there were a bunch of different tabloids that were in existence in England and the UK. Uh, Daily Express, Daily Mail, the Daily Star, the Sun, and the Daily Record, uh, as well as the Daily Mirror that was still going strong. These were kind of like the big top ones. And you'll find that majority of those were actually pretty conservative leaning, but there were certain little pockets of, of papers and certain people who worked for certain tabloids that were a lot more uh, liberal and um, left-leaning. So that, again, shouldn't be biased towards that. But I, th I think you'll find that the papers that are a little bit more left-leaning tend to have a bit more unbiased and fair and impartial reporting, as much as that can be possible for a tabloid, because the whole idea of a tabloid is to present pretty much patently incorrect information uh, but whatever people will believe to get a story going. So, either side is going to have an agenda that isn't necessarily good for the sake of their paycheck and the sake of the business that they work for, the company that they work for. So, this is very much the, these type of papers and TV shows. It's, they're acting more as, you know, a money-making business rather than a tool to help the masses understand what's going on in society and pop culture. And so by the 1970s, this is a big time for the shift in newsprint that was going from being out on the street newsstands or, you know, you go to your local, um, I guess, the drugstore or your local corner store or there'll be like an actual stall out on the street, and that would have all of your newspapers and magazines available for sale. But at this time in history, in the 1970s, they were shifting from newsstand sales to grocery store sales because they realized there was a huge untapped market in impulse buy area of the store 
and the fact that so many more people were visiting supermarkets and it was therefore, um, a, especially the number one consumers that they're going for, which is kind of like the lower to middle class and uh, the women that they're looking for as their big fan fan base, their big customer base. And they realized that there was a big area of untapped business that they could hit people at a grocery store in the checkout line. And it was very likely that someone, you know, on their way out was just going to go pick up one of these tabloids, if especially if they weren't super expensive, and take it home with them. And they didn't they they wouldn't have to make it yet another trip to the newsstand. So that is sort of how magazine and tabloids kind of sort of came to be at the grocery store. And a lot of them had this sort of uh, business thing worked out with the stores. So like any unsold issues, they would just, because the stores are paying to have them in that location. And then any unsold copies, you know, the tabloid's going to claim to buy them back. So this is where we had a huge uptick in sales just from grocery store visits. I think that for a lot of us, a lot of us, uh, myself as a millennial and anybody younger, we're not going to remember the time when there was actual newsstands out on the street. All we really know is newspapers being delivered to your front step or you've got the grocery store, essentially, is the the two places and possibly the corner store is where you're going to be finding your news, um, like your newsprint. So this is also, between the 70s to now, was the kind of building the foundations of some of the most popular North American tabloids that we all know and love. The ones that you're going to remember as a kid seeing in the grocery store, or potentially, you know, at like your kind of weird relative's house. Um, You also see them a lot at doctor's offices and hair salons. Um, I don't think you can go to any of those places without seeing, like, at least one tabloid. So, this is, they're hitting all these different areas where people are going to be receiving this information. So, uh, some of the big ones are going to be the National Enquirer, the Globe, Star, Weekly World News, one of my personal favorites, um, just the, like the blatant, brazen, false stories in the Weekly World News coupled with just like the, the fakest pictures, like the worst photo editing that I've ever seen. And like, I am, uh, that's, that's me saying that as like one of the fucking worst people to ask to do any sort of photo editing. I'm completely inept in that area. We also had, of course... The New York Post, New York Daily News, and The Examiner. And then this sort of led to, like, wars between tabloids when they were really in their heyday. That kind of started with the whole Pulitzer-Harmsworth thing. Um, Pulitzer also had a big back-and-forth feud with the Hearst Empire conglomerate um, with the New York World versus the Journal. Uh, That was back in the late 1800s. Uh, William Randolph Hearst was, as you may know, a very famous, again, originator of popular newsprint. Um, They were responsible for a lot of popular magazines and newspaper publications in the 
you know, beginning of the 20th century as well. Um, that was sort of a whole, uh, sort of beginning the whole uh, cutthroat competitive nature of tabloids because every everybody's sort of working uh, against each other in these different um, newspaper publications to try and get a story broken first. And, you know, multiple people might show up to the same location at the same time to cover a story. There was a lot of, you know, going behind people's backs, using kind of any tactics to get that story and get it out first in your paper. Um, a lot of behind the scenes buying and selling and buying out and selling people out. It's, it was a pretty crazy sort of thing. And, and it just kind of shows just how committed people are to spreading these lies, but how important those lies are to like their and everyone else's livelihood and their, their empire that they're trying to build. So, um, there's lots of other different tabloids in different countries that were also very famous, but it's a very specific type of, you know, trashy and very, you know, as far as you can assume that a reasonable person would be able to see at face value, just completely untrue bullshit. But there's a lot of people out there who take what is in these tabloids as, as law and as, as gospel. So they've, they've really done a good job at roping some people in to these false narratives. Uh, we also had in the time kind of like between the 1980s to the present, we had, you know, in touch us weekly, um, all these other different soap opera specific tabloids as well that, you know, catered to just people who love soaps. And that was sort of kind of making a niche market of like a, a genre of TV that was already filled with fake drama and now you've got a tabloid talking about the fake drama of the fake drama. So that was also kind of funny to me. I'll go into Weekly World News for a second because, as I mentioned, Weekly World News. I think that, I think that there needs to be just a special little offshoot part of this podcast to just talk about Weekly World News. Most of most people my age will remember seeing Weekly World News at the newsstands. I don't, I don't think they've run a single true story since they've since their inception. But there's a lot of people out there who who take everything that's in Weekly World News to be true. And I know there's probably a whole bunch of people who purchase it just for jokes and knowing that nothing in there is actually real. Um, so I'm going to just look up a little bit of information on Weekly World News. I just think it's one of the best, like, so, it's just so fake and so terrible, but it, it's just such a fun read just because you can read it usually with the knowledge that what you're reading, it's just so, so preposterous that you can kind of just read it without having to worry about having any doubt in your mind. You can kind of just laugh at it. But, you know, there's, as I said, a lot of people who really do take this to heart. Weeklyworldnews.com, they have a website as well as having their tabloids still being in print in certain places. The world's only reliable news source is what they are selling themselves as. 
So the most recent post on their website from November 7th, the alien species living next door. Sort of. What if I told you there's an interdimensional co-species living in plain sight among us, creatures that went unknown and unnoticed until the early 1800s? So, right away, you've got a catchy headline, the alien species living next door. Then it goes into, basically, this... This, uh is talking about how it's a, these creatures from another dimension called Blurs, and they're jumping in and out of our field of vision in between the reality they live in, the dimension that they come from, and the reality that we are in. Generally, uh, it basically gives you some backstory on them, what to do if you think you encountered one, what do they want? Things like that. So, this Weekly World News story gives sort of a few things that might lead you to believe that the story could be true. So, it references a historical time period, the 1800s, the early 1800s. And it talks about how people didn't know about the concept of these beings until the invention of, of photography and then when people would start taking photos and noticing that these mysterious creatures were in the photos. So it's playing on a few different very important factors of how to draw people in on a new story. As I said, the catchy headline, they're using some basis of fact, even like as much as they can Grass bat, so in this case they're referencing a fairly um, broad historical time period and an actual historical event, the invention of photography, to try and tether their absolutely bonkers story and reality. <laughs> they reference Kanye in this too. <laughs> oh, and it even says here, which I was going to talk about later in the episode, what to do if you think you've encountered a blur. Snap a picture if you can, but remember, blurs don't like being photographed and can sometimes react violently, like Kanye, or gay, I guess, now we should say, with the paparazzi. So exercise extreme caution. They had to get that dig in on Kanye. I, I love that for them. The Weekly World News is best known for these sort of alien contact stories. You see a lot of stories about how they have not only stories, but photos of aliens. I believe there was one they ran about Hillary Clinton having an, a secret alien baby or adopting a secret alien baby that I came across in my research. Uh, lots of different ones with various people being abducted by aliens, uh, probed by aliens, having some kind of contact with them. How different celebrities could possibly be aliens. Uh, lots of things like that. Um, there's a lot of talk in the Weekly World News about various celebrities who've died, who are not actually dead, they faked their own death, and are still alive and well and living somewhere. Elvis Presley is the most popular one that you'll see in the Weekly World News in that respect. Lots of, like, just very strange 
kind of news stories regarding weird medical accidents, uh, miracles, tragedies, as we mentioned before. One that comes to mind that I, I, I remember from my research was a woman who sneezed so hard that her whole hairline like got blown around the other way. Stump something like that. A lady who had her head cut off and then they had it reattached. And then, of course, one of the most famous stories of Weekly World News, which I'll look up right now, is Bad Boy. If you look up, if you type in Weekly World News on Google, you'll probably see this story come up first. This was a long-running story. Starting in 1992, Bad Boy is a fictional creature who made numerous appearances in this tabloid. It was a front-page story back in 1992. By 1997, Bad Boy became a pop culture phenomenon as more and more people started finding out about it. Some of the stories that they had regarding Bat Boy, we have Bat Boy picks Bigfoot for his 2020 running mate. Bat Child escapes. Coast to Coast Manhunt for Cave Boy captured just weeks ago. Oh, here, here's the Hillary Clinton alien baby one. Hillary Clinton adopts alien baby. Secret Service building, special nursery in the White House. Oh, and this is this is the official photo. They have an official, completely real, and not photoshopped photo of Hillary Clinton holding this alien baby. It's fucking hilarious. And then, of course, this is the bat boy. I'll show you guys the bat boy. Bat boy lives! This is actually a... This is actually a real photo that they tried to circulate in their tabloid and tell people that this was an actual half-human, half-bat child and ran not one but several stories in their tabloid about this creature and how it was trying to, you know, integrate into society. In 1997, for those musical theater fans out there, there was actually a musical about Bat Boy, and it's actually fucking hilarious, and it's actually really good. I remember back when um, I was doing theater and this this musical came out, and like there was a couple people I knew that were just absolutely obsessed with it. An off-Broadway Bat Boy the musical. It was, it's Yeah, so if you don't know about that, please go check it out. Go listen to the soundtrack for that. It's fucking great. It's, a, it's the greatest musical ever. So, this is an instance where Certain things in the Weekly World News, as crazy and unbelievable as they were, somehow managed to infiltrate into mainstream pop culture, if only even as a joke. So we have that. We have Weekly World News to thank for Bat Boy and a bunch of other crazy-ass stories. Oh, here's some other ones. Bat Boy leads cops on a three-state chase. Damn, Bat Boy. Bat Boy, Bad Boy, Bud Mud, Bud Boy, Living on the Edge, a Chimp's Head Put on Human Body, Oh, Noah Had a Second Arc that was found, didn't know if you guys knew that, this shit is too funny, oh my god, yeah, so, Weekly World News, if you do really want to laugh, that's actually 
one of the most um, out, out there tabloids that really doesn't talk about anything true. But a lot of the other tabloids are actually focusing on real people, real celebrities, real politicians, and they are actually referencing a lot of potential truths that could be actually verified gossip. And this sort of, uh, again, will play into our talk about paparazzi because a lot of the, um, a lot of the adherence to the story of, of uh, what these celebrities are doing and whether or not it's true ties in a lot to um, whatever, you know, expose that you can get on these celebrities or, you know, prominent people in society and pop culture. So you're trying to expose them through either these reliable sources or leaks within their, um, you know, PR team giving you information they shouldn't be in exchange for a fee, or you've got people, um, again, those same people, sometimes even the celebrities or the, or the person of note themselves, um, leaking photos or information. And then you've also, of course, got paparazzi. You've got photographers and people with video cameras, phones going out on the street and trying to catch celebrities kind of in their day-to-day life or even to the point of uh, following them at their house, stalking and camping out in areas for hours, days at a time to try and get a good shot or a good video recording. Um, and some some of these interactions have bordered on harassment. So we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that with the paparazzi, but like, whereas the weekly world news is clearly not sending real photographers out to get these photos. They're clearly just taking existing stock photos or whatever photos that they found and completely doctoring it for the, for the paper. It's clearly not real. Uh, these other tabloids that are focusing more on celebrity and political gossip, they're actually using real photos of real people for the most part. They haven't been doctored generally, but they haven't been really obtained by consensual means. Let's just say that. Most of these celebrities are not, you know, popping out to have their photo taken. Some of them have a different attitude about tabloids and paparazzi and kind of play along with it or are cool with it, but a lot of celebrities really don't like having cameras and reporters in their face all the time, especially if they know it's for a news publication or a TV show that's probably not going to report the truth about them. They're going to take whatever photo or sound bite or etc. that they can get, and then they're going to embellish it and twist it around into whatever the most interesting story is that they can invent out of these sort of little cur- around these sort of little kernels of truths and half truths that they've collected. This is where we kind of get to the shift from TV to internet. And I'm going to take a second to talk about a couple really prominent tabloid reporters and um, a tabloid mogul, I guess you could say, that really shaped the face of the the U.S. and uh, their sort of uh, their sort of interpretation and the distribution of sensationalist journalism. So I'm going to take a little break before I do that. 
because I feel my voice, as you may have noticed, is getting a little bit strained. So, and we're already at about an hour past the time. So I'm just going to take a quick little break and use the facilities and, you know, have a little drink and everything here. When I come back, uh, we'll do the second half of the episode going into sort of the 80s to now, the different tabloid approaches that we see and sort of the fallout of how this is slowly starting to finally affect celebrities in major ways and how a lot of celebrities did what they could to fight back against this sort of um, type of journalism and how they're portrayed uh, and sort of take some more ownership back from both the type of stories that are being put out there, but also the way that they're, the lengths, as I mentioned, that the reporters and the uh, photographers and everything are going to get this scoop is now infringing in like a legal way, potentially, in terms of safety and in privacy respect for all these different celebrities. So we'll, we'll be talking about a few specific ones, like the biggies that you might remember from the 90s and the Y2K times. So I'll be right back and stay tuned for the second half of the episode. And I'll be right back. Hey, Kato. Oh, Phobos here. I forgot he was snoozing on the bed. Hey, bud. You want to come say hi? Oh, a big yawn. Oh, I see. You just want to go snooze somewhere else? Not in here? Am I bothering you, friend? I'm so sorry. Oh, Mr. Man. You're cute. I just remembered I have this tripod that I was going to set up for to uh, mount my cell phone on, but uh, I f- completely forgot. I could have been using this to hold my cell phone the entire time, so it could be hands-free. Let's try that. My roommate gave me this tripod to try out, so let me just see if it holds my phone well here. Ah, oh, there we go. Uh, excuse me. I've just got to be careful of the pop socket. There we go. That's a little better. So, uh, now that we're back from the break, we can continue on with the second half of the episode. We're going to go into sort of the 80s to now and that sort of expression of tabloid journalism. I'm going to take another little sip of my liquids first to help my voice. Also, just a reminder before we keep going in the spirit of the holidays and doing shameless plugs. Um, just to let you know, uh, my services um, for holiday stuff, side hustle, and small business stuff. Um, if anyone is interested, um, it's not something that I really advertise anymore. But I've been thinking of maybe you know putting it back out there for um, potential options for gifts and treats to give people. Um, I am available for yoga teacher training services. Um, so I am a certified yoga instructor, so I am available for classes. If you want to do a individual one-on-one or group class, I am available for Hatha and Vinyasa yoga, restorative yoga, 
yin yoga, and meditation. So if you are interested, you can message me through the Fantasy Tavern Facebook or Instagram social media. I do also have a yoga-related social media page on Facebook and Instagram, which is Satya Yoga with Marita. I've been thinking of changing the name, but I haven't really come up with a new name yet, so right now it is still the same. So I'll put that up in the video version, but if you want to check it out online, it is S-A-T-Y-A Yoga with Marita, all one word. If you want to check the handle, that would be, again, S-A-T-Y-A Yoga with Marita. You can search that on Facebook or Instagram, and you can uh, look up some of the services I offer. You can message me through that social media avenue, preferably for any yoga-related questions about prices, COVID precautions, and kind of what you could expect in a class for me. So that's one of my few little side hustles. I'm also available for singing engagements, for various holiday parties, weddings, things like that. And I also am trying to start up a knitting business slowly but surely. I have been trying to get back into my knitting again, so I am also available for um, knitting any winter hats, scarves, gloves, and socks that you might be looking for. And uh, I should have some more samples of work up soon. As I said, I haven't really been into it too much, but I have been toying with the idea of starting up my Etsy shop that I started way back ages ago and starting to do a little bit more on there in terms of my knitting and sourcing vintage clothing again. So if you want to check that out, I'll be I'll be including the link to that actual social media in the future episode, but I'll slowly start to post some examples of my work and give you guys some examples in the videos here. I actually just ordered as well iCord knitting, like a little knitting mill machine because I really wanted to have some kind of neon signage to go up on the wall or have somewhere here in this nook. But I also saw this really cool idea that's kind of catching on, which is um, iCord name, custom names that I saw. This one social media account, that's a really popular product that they have. So I was thinking I could do like a sign, like a wool yarn sign cursive and then maybe incorporate some lights into that um, somehow so I have brainstorm for this sign for a little really long time and this is actually uh, a lot more cost-effective option than paying for a neon sign and will still be good quality comp uh, compared to if I were to try and go to like a big box store and try and get like a crappy neon sign that may not even be what I want it to say um, as you may have seen from like the first or second episode, my attempt at getting a sign did not work out at all with the one I bought, but this was just some shitty one from Walmart, so I don't know what I was expecting. So I'm going to try the homemade DIY sign route and see if that works out. In the meantime, while I continue to save some money for a nice neon sign. And of course we have this sign as well. 
that's been going strong, doing the job. It does, of course, turn on, but I took the batteries out because when you turn it on, for some reason, it completely blanks out what you see on the sign. So I, I've been using it without the light. But this is one I, again, just got from Walmart, and it's just kind of like a little mini marquee signboard thing. You can throw some batteries in it, or you can put, you can hook it up to the uh, adapter and plug it into the wall, and it'll light up for you. There's also little hook holes at the back you can mount it on the wall too if you like. So those are some of my side hustles and services that I have available going on for the holidays and just be prepared to see a little bit more um, content uh, breaks and stuff just to put some different ad based um, and shameless plug based things into the episodes. That'll only really be happening until the end of the year and then we'll kind of go back to the regular scheduled ad free uh, shill free <laughs> excuse me um, you know not selling out content that you've all come to know and love. Because the last thing I want to do is make a habit of having it be ad-based. Um, I know that's how a lot of podcasts get by, and at least not yet. I don't, I don't really want to go down that road yet. I want to try and do it not every single episode and kind of decide how to do it on my own terms. So hopefully this will this sort of approach will work out for me and everyone else listening. Mm. So, without that being said, gotta, gotta secure the bag, as well as deliver the, the sweet, sweet podcast content. So, you know, in this economy, you have to try and, and hit all those marks, as you all may be very well aware of. So yeah, let's continue on. Because this is kind of like the meaty portion of the the story, and also a, what a lot of us millennials and and everybody Gen X and millennials are gonna remember in terms of what the kind of the heyday of tabloid journalism was for us. So I'm gonna go back to the gossip documentary that I was watching. As I mentioned before, this is a four-part documentary, and it centers around the New York Post and Cindy Adams. So, the New York Post was a very, and still is, a very popular tabloid. Um, kind of started back in the 50s and 60s, and was definitely focused on celebrity, movie star, singer, gossip, and scandals. So, as we mentioned, um, a lot of these tabloids started way back in the 1800s, 1900s. So, we'll look up for the New York Post, just to make sure that is an accurate time period, is the 50s. So, the New York Post uh, changed ownership a few times in its history. Um, you can also find most of the news stories for New York Post on a website as well, say it's similar to Weekly World News. You can go to their website. So, the New York Post, as we mentioned with certain tabloids, they can have a specific political leaning. 
So for the most part, for most of how, what people remember as being the New York Post, they've been a fairly conservative-leaning tabloid, uh, similar to The Sun, which exists in various different places, um, and it's sort of known to be more, I guess, sympathetic to conservative, right-leaning politicians and things like that. Page six, as I mentioned before, which was typically referencing the page of the tabloid that would have, like, the super racy sort of, I guess, centerfold, you could call it, and different things like that. Um, the New York Post had an offshoot, page six, which turned into its own celebrity gossip site, and they also run Decider.com, which is an enter- another entertainment website. The New York Post is typically covering all sorts of different things, politics, sports, entertainment, everything you could think of. But they also have these two sort of other offshoot websites that are really just dealing with entertainment and celebrity news gossip. The founder was Alexander Hamilton. And yes, you heard that right. (laughs) We are talking about that Alexander Hamilton. Most of what we know about Alexander Hamilton as Canadians is from the musical Hamilton. So we're going to kind of skip through a lot of the backstory. Uh, Basically, Alexander Hamilton's life ended in a duel with Aaron Burr, was shot and died the following day after he was challenged to a duel. Pretty crazy way to go out. A little-known fact about Alexander Hamilton is that they helped to to found the New York Post, which was originally called the New York Evening Post. And at the time that um, another another prominent person comes into the story of the New York Post, Rupert Murdoch, a very, very famous name, um, it was previously owned by um, a... Uh, an heir to a shipping uh, company, I believe. Yeah, by Dorothy Schiff. They were, uh, or no, sorry, it was um, a banking banking family. Um, she was the she was related to Jacob Schiff, um, who is a a banker, businessman, philanthropist. So she kind of became a business woman in her own right and at the time owned the New York Post but wasn't super interested in it didn't really have a lot of like personal investment in the paper they kind of just owned it um and Dorothy Schiff was a liberal and um also kind of um helped to change what the paper originally was seeing the effect and the positive influence on sales for tabloid format newspapers was actually already starting to transfer the look of the paper over to a tabloid format. In in the mid-70s, Rupert Murdoch comes along. So we'll get back to Cindy Adams in a second because she comes, she joins the New York Post a little bit after its sort of revamp with Rupert Murdoch. She was kind of doing her own thing first before she joined the New York Post and became sort of this tabloid gossip queen. But 
Rupert Murdoch, whose whose real name is Keith Rupert Murdoch, but goes by their their second name. Um, they are Australian and are sort of the best known for um, establishing several very prominent tabloid uh, journalist newspapers and TV networks and shows. We have uh, here uh, The Sun, The Times, Daily Telegraph, Herald Sun, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Post. So they owned all of these different news publications. Uh, they also uh, owned HarperCollins, Sky News, and also, most famously, Fox News, which we'll, we'll touch on briefly as we get towards the end of the 90s, 2000s list. Um, Fox News, it, and it's something we often forget, because me growing up, Fox News was not the haven for as much the haven for right-wing um, propaganda as it is now. It was more just like a network where you could watch sort of uh, semi-controversial, maybe not politically correct cartoons and TV shows. And then, of course, for kids, on the weekends, it was like Cartoon Central. So you had like all your favorite cartoons, and also after school and stuff too, but mainly Saturday morning. Um... So that was how I thought of Fox News growing up. But, um, as well as, I guess, like, all the different sort of local news station things that were sort of linked to it. But now, when we think of Fox News, we think of Tucker Carlson and all these different, like, right-wing pundits who were spewing bullshit on the daily. And in many ways, Fox News went even more in the direction of sensationalist tabloid-style journalism. Because everything they talk about on Fox News just sort of is, like, imbued with this sense of, you know, you're trying to stir up fear, you're trying to stir up doubt, and you're trying to gain favor from your viewers for specific political leaning or specific political party. Whereas it wasn't really even that apparent back in the day. Like, they do touch on in gossip, they talk about um, Bill O'Reilly. And back in the day, that was an outlet for him. But it's made so much worse now. And so we kind of see that descent into following a lot of the similar tactics of tabloid journalism and trying to pass it off as real news anchoring, real, real news. It's fake news. Yeah, they love their Trump over there and all of his little cohorts. And so something about the New York Post is that they were actually very pro-Trump um, up until pretty recently. So even like back when he was younger and stuff, they would kind of support him. There's a lot of funny stories actually about Trump calling around to different newspapers, including tabloids, calling them and leaving, uh, talking to people on the phone or leaving voice messages and him talking about how Trump was seen with all these beautiful models or like Trump did something that made him this much money or Trump just bought this whatever property, but it would be Trump calling and like using a fake name or a fake voice 
to try and get them to write a story about him that was positive. <coughs> I know that we shouldn't be surprised that this fucking clown did this, but he did it. Very often, apparently. He was also one of the people who would try to, like, trade stories or pay people off to not run certain stories about him. Or give them information about a different person and say, oh, this is a really good story you should run this instead of talking shit about me. Or I'll give you this story about me that's less damaging if you promise not to run this other story and stuff like that. So Trump apparently was notorious for trying to influence his his popular opinion in any sort of way. And he would even resort to going to tabloids, which some a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think what they're saying about him is true, just based on the nature of the newspaper or the show. But he still... So so him doing this, it's, again, it seems like, you know, if you actually figured out what was going on and knew he was behind it, it's like it seems like then the stuff they're saying about you in this case would be true. Because why would you then go to such great lengths to try and get people not to talk about it? So, because of certain people who worked at the New York Post and their political leanings, and also kind of just based on the fact that they were sort of technically just friends within the, within the celebrity circles for X amount of years, they just, based on a personal relationship as well as their political beliefs, would never say anything bad about Trump, for example. So this is showing their inability to be impartial and just report on stories. There's always, like, the politics are extending into the newspaper business as well. So we have here, um, there's also News of the World, which now no longer exists. Um, Rupert Murdoch is the 31st richest person in the United States and the 71st richest in the entire world. To give you an idea of how much they made through the course of their career as the media mogul. They have... Yeah, they're no longer really running Fox. They're, they're a chairman of the Fox Corporation as of now. And they're a board member. Um, there was a whole thing with the New York Post as well. So... Rupert Murdoch owned the New York Post from, let me just see how long. This was back in, as I said, the early, the, sorry, the mid-70s. They actually had to become a naturalized citizen because there was a legal requirement that only U.S. Citizen were, citizens were permitted to own U.S. television stations. So that would allow him to then purchase 20th Century Fox. And then um, the thing was with that as well, between that and owning the New York Post, there was technically a law that made him being able to own both of the newspaper and the TV network at the same time illegal. But they made an exception for Murdoch. Fox, Fox Network at the time that Murdoch owned it and was in its heyday, they were actually getting exclusive rights for NFL and NFC games. They took that from CBS. 
the FCC was um, ruling in Murdoch's favor, saying that the ownership of Fox was in the best interest of the public, and therefore they got they had a loophole. Murdoch basically had a loophole allowing them to then own both things at the same time. Oh, and this is also interesting. Rupert Murdoch and Ted Turner, founder and former owner of CNN, are longstanding rivals. I'm trying to find the thing with the Kennedys, the whole Kennedy thing. Yeah, so because what happened was um, they kept going after the Kennedys in the news. Little did they realize that Ted Kennedy wasn't going to just take this criticism and they decided to kind of go after Murdoch for um, this law that was supposed to be getting upheld for not being able to own the TV network and the paper at the same time. So they ended up getting that loophole and that exception overturned and made Murdoch have to make the choice to sell either the newspaper or the TV network. Now, because at the time, the newsprint business, newspapers and magazines and everything were already seen to be on the decline and on the way out, and TV was the way to go, they decided to keep the... And also because Murdoch had just purchased the network, they decided to keep that and sell off the New York Post to somebody else. So it ended up going into someone else's hands. And so that brings us to... Oh, Murdoch was actually involved in the, uh, his, his news corporation company bought Intermix Media in 2005, which held MySpace, Imagine Games Network, and any other social networking-themed websites at the time that were popular. Um, and this is the beginning of his involvement in online media. Um, they ended up selling MySpace off for $35 million dollars. Uh, Murdoch is known for taking pretty bold risks with investments and purchases and most of the time having them pay off, um, despite having a lot of critics and having a lot of people try and get in his way. He seems to be very good at um, making these decisions and just kind of like getting a good feel for the, the social climate and the timing and you know what, what's going to do well uh, money-wise. Uh, at one time, 21st Century Fox, when Murdoch still technically owned it in 2000, a CEO was CEO of it in 2014, they made a bid for Time Warner, and Time Warner's board of directors turned that down. They basically um, decided to withdraw the offer to purchase Time Warner. Uh, Murdoch left the post as CEO of 21st Century Fox in 2015 technically still owned the company. Then, as we all know, Fox got bought out by Disney back in 2019. And a lot of the assets were kind of spun off between Fox and Disney. A lot of them are still owned by Murdoch. And this includes Fox News. Murdoch was acting CEO from 2016 until 2019, following the resignation of Roger Ailes due to accusations of sexual harassment. And that's the story for another day. I definitely want to do a uh, an episode on Fox and Fox News and their relation to popular culture because I feel like there were so many things on Fox News that 
are ingrained in my mind as part of my pop culture experience, both good and bad. That's kind of just a brief synopsis of who Rupert Murdoch is and his influence on the tabloids game and on uh, kind of the transition from newsprint to um, TV and internet. There were also some pretty good TV shows that were kind of up and coming within that time frame. Um, we had A Current Affair, which uh, was touched on in the gossip documentary. Uh, Maury, you see Maury talking a little bit about that. So Maury kind of went from doing Current Affair, which Cindy Adams was featured on actually, um, doing kind of like news slash tabloid journalism. And he went kind of basically from that to doing The Maury Show, which kind of takes that that super raunchy, trashy, extra sensationalist, and then focusing on sort of like only a couple different stories, usually paternity tests and makeovers and cheating scandals and, and things like that, and sort of making that his bread and butter. Um, I won't really go into Maury. That's, yeah, again, another episode that's not necessarily tabloid, because um, as far as I'm concerned, I, tabloid for me is really focusing on well-known prominent figures, whereas the Maury show is kind of taking, like, unknowns and giving them, like, an informal court to kind of hash out their differences, in a manner of speaking. And then there are, again, there's certain elements of it that are tabloidy, like they're using the paternity test as sort of the real scientific thing that kind of, again, tethers the whole ridiculous farce of a show in reality somehow, as if they're giving, like, accurate results on these paternity tests every time. And not just whatever answer is going to cause, like, the craziest response or whatever. Because I'm not exactly sold, uh, uh, of course, on the fact that the Maury show is using all real people and these are all real, genuine reactions. Like, there are going to be writers and things that they're going to know are going to happen in advance and everything like that. I just can't believe that it's all not scripted. It just seems too ridiculous. Um, but yeah, tabloid, as, as we're going to focus on today and how I would personally define it, is that you're, you're focusing your... Um, you're focusing your source of gossip on famous people. So we're talking about celebrities, politicians. This is going to take me into uh, Cindy Adams. Then we'll talk a little bit about some of the the more recent uh, tabloid types of shows and blogs and things like that as we move away from newsprint. But we'll have this last sort of story here as part of like the transition period. Because Cindy Adams really was, in terms of North American pop culture and tabloids, she really was like the the link between kind of the old school and the new school. This is something that I kind of want to touch on. And just kind of in terms of her personality, personality and delivery of the type of stories that she would come across. And the, the, the way that she would get access to having some of these stories because just of who she was in elite celebrity social circles because of who she knew and things like that. At that point in her life, she was able to have a window in where most people didn't get that, and she always got really good stories because of it because she kind of not only had people bringing her leads, but she was able to just go get them herself because she was hanging out with these people on the weekends. So 
We have Cindy Adams, New Yorker from the start. She was she's she's from New York. She she didn't grow up very wealthy or or, or anything like that, but her family really wanted to kind of find an in in terms of these popular social circles that would then get them close to the rich and famous. So from a very young age, Cindy was sort of, I was going to say groomed, but like that has this like connotation of being for sexual purposes. But I mean, it's not like, it's not unfair to say that there was probably some, some grooming going on, but in that sense, but I, for me, I mean like her, she was sent to a lot of like, you know, uh, etiquette classes and different like classes to improve her her speaking, her accent, um, teach her how to walk and talk and act a certain way that people in these different circles, how they would act. Um, she had a plastic surgery done at a very young age at the insistence of her family and um, basically turned into this model and sort of like eye candy for men. And from there, she was kind of put to work in sort of the the pageant and modeling circuit. From that, she met Joey Adams, who was a very popular comedian and Toastmaster, who basically did uh, speeches and roasts and stand-up at sort of pretty much any function you could think of. But at that particular moment in his career, he was starting to get close to a lot of popular movie stars and singers and things like that, and politics uh, based people at the time. So this is where Cindy Adams and Joey Adams, Cindy Heller is her original name, and so she met Joey Adams. They ended up getting married, and so this was beginning Cindy's exposure to the world of celebrity. So she starts becoming best friends with all these various people through her connections with Joey. She ends up traveling as well on a lot of foreign tours with him because he would go and perform sort of like USOs and he would go to different countries and perform for like the world leaders there and do all sorts of things like that. And so Cindy started becoming friends with a lot of world leaders, many of whom would be considered to be, you know, fascist leaning dictators, basically. But it it provided her with an in to a world that not a lot of people, even other journalists, were able to access, which would end up helping her out a lot later in her career as well. Because at this point, she, she started turning from, like, the trophy wife to actually deciding that she wanted to take her, her prowess with her social skills and ability to talk to people and basically get them to tell her anything that she wanted to hear. She was just always really good at that. And so she started writing books. Uh, she um, famously helped to write um, an autobiography of Sukarno, who was the leader of Indonesia. Um, that was one of her first published pieces of literature, I guess, before she even started working for the New York Post. So then she started uh, appearing on various TV networks, doing spots for... But So before she became a gossip columnist, she was not only 
um, engaging in, like, this writing career, but she was also appearing, as I said, on, um, Good Morning America, yeah, it was on ABC, and she was also contributing to the New York Post, and then subsequently the tabloid television show A Current Affair, as I mentioned, which had Maury on it. Um, she was also very good friends with the Shah of Iran, and she also published a biography of Jolie Gabor, the mother of the Gabor sisters, Ava and Jaja Gabor. Um, and she also became very good friends with Imelda and Ferdinand Marcos. So both the Shah of Iran and the Marcoses were famously known for fleeing their respective countries. Um, the Shah, because he was dealing with uh, medical issues, I believe it was cancer, and the Marcoses were basically kind of forced to leave because their their citizens were getting a little bit upset about the fact that they were stealing all their money and uh, basically kind of like funneling it out of the country and using it to support their extremely exorbitant, lavish lifestyle. We all know the story of Imelda Marcos and the thousands of shoes and all that stuff. So then we have the appearance in the New York Post. This was, again, kind of um, an in with Joey because he started writing for the New York Post, I believe, and so they decided to bring her on as well and give her a gossip column. The New York Post... So they had, like, two sections. There was, like, the Long Island Post... Sorry, the Long Island Press, and then they also had the New York Post. In 1981, Adams became an officially syndicated newspaper columnist, um, and she also appeared as a panelist on To Tell the Truth, which was an NBC television network game show. She was known for ending her columns with the catchphrase, Only in New York, kids. Only in New York. And her style of writing um, basically kind of just reflected the way that she kind of spoke normally. She kind of, in a bit of her older years especially, started to move even more towards the sort of snarky and uh, catty sort of style of reporting. Had a lot of creative control over the types of stories that she was able to write about and uh, how they uh, visually appeared in the paper as well. The New York Post basically thrived essentially on her and her gossip column. It was um, something that a lot of people looked forward to, and a lot of people kind of dreaded because um, of what she might say about them or the way she would kind of say it. But this is sort of typical of a lot of uh, different critic columns, like even the the highbrow respected you know, food or entertainment critics in a, in a regular paper, people are still going to worry about what's said about them or, or the show or whatever that they've been in uh, or album or etc. But in this case, New York Post, even still being a tabloid, people still very much got that fear from Cindy. That it, she, she kind of added some legitimacy to 
to a genre that's known for running fake stories just to get people to buy the paper. It, when she wrote it, not only did you feel it was credible because you knew her background and, and how many people she actually knew in the business, but just kind of the matter-of-fact way that she would say things and didn't really sugarcoat stuff. And she would she would word it with just the right amount of vagueness mixed with the fact that it could it could possibly be fact that you it was a lot more easy to believe what she said. And of course, we, we talked about how she was already sort of very naturally charismatic, um, not afraid to go after certain stories uh, or say certain things about people. With exception, as we mentioned, she uh, was one of the people who was friends with Trump and because of that would not write about him as negatively as other people were writing about him because she wanted to maintain that friendship and possibly was a little bit concerned about what he would do if she wrote something bad about him, what would happen to her job or the paper. Which is very interesting because there are also stories that you hear about other journalists going after Cindy Adams and making disparaging comments about her. And, like, within 24 hours, they get fired. And, like, basically the saying, you'll never work in this town again, she makes sure of that. So it's interesting that, like, she's dishing out all of this criticism and insults and gossip about people, and yet she seemed very unwilling to take that herself and used her leverage to actually get people fired just because she didn't like what they had to say, which I think is kind of funny. You can't really deny that this was a very, very influential person, both for the New York Post and for Murdoch, but for, like, the entire tabloid concept. Adding any, any time that it's adding legitimacy to it is always a good thing, I guess, and no matter how it's presented, all these other journalists are benefiting from her approach. So the, yeah, the, the New York Post has not been without other different kinds of controversies. They, up until recently, they are getting um, blocked and called out by different people, up to and including, uh, in April 2021, it says here, for example, the Post published a false front page story asserting that copies of a book by Vice President Kamala Harris were being distributed to migrant children at an intake facility in Long Beach, California. And uh, in October 2022, very recently, a rogue employee of The Post published a series of racist, violent, and sexually explicit headlines on its Twitter account. Fucking Twitter, always causing people problems. See Elon Musk. So shortly after these headlines released... This The Post was trying to say that, of course, this was the result of a hack and were immediately removed and the incident was under investigation and followed up by saying that the unauthorized conduct was um, identified as committed by an employee who has been terminated. Um, the New York Post, again, goes back to about 1801 by their historical recount. Um... It says that it is the oldest continuously published daily U.S. newspaper. However, there were a couple strikes that happened that did actually halt production. So technically, it wasn't continuously, but in terms of it being, I guess, under the same name, 
as as far as you could say, then I suppose it is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, that you would find. It just kind of goes into other different things in terms of, like, their website now, sales and stuff like that. As far as I know, Cindy is still working for the New York Post. I'm not sure if they have retired yet. Uh, At the time of the movie coming out, they were still writing a column and uh, brainstorming ideas of what to write. They have been going strong. Cindy's been going strong for a really long time. Documentary, I'm kind of conflicted on how I feel about her as a person. She's definitely a bad bitch, but also the conservative leanings and kind of the affiliation with Trump did not sit right with me and just some of the other stuff that she said too, but you can't deny that she's been a very influential character in the tabloid game. Um, and not only that influenced a lot of women to pursue journalist careers and kind of pursue that sort of route. So there's something to be said for that. So now let's move on from that whole story to the paparazzi and the modern take on the tabloid. So we've got, yeah, we've got a few more minutes to cover that. Went a little bit longer than I wanted it to be, but that's okay. So as, again, uh, us millennials and Gen Zers are going to know from the more recent tabloid iterations, we've got TMZ, Perez Hilton, Lainey Gossip, more uh, E-Talk, Entertainment Tonight, and The Soup, and all sorts of other different shows like that, that are um, people, even People Magazine, in some ways. I mentioned in, yeah, US Weekly, In Touch, Magazine, all of those different um, publications and TV shows that are now firmly cementing the goal of tabloid to talk about celebrity. So just movie stars, singers, things like that. This brings us to the rise of uh, trash TV and the paparazzi. So TMZ is a a great example of this. So TMZ uh, has a website as well as the TV show. Uh, It's set up as sort of like a weekly meeting between the, the owner, the person who runs TMZ, and all the other journalists and photographers and things like that, um, videographers, whatever you want to call them. And they go around and talk about the interesting stories that they came up with for that week and in which celebrities they involve. And then it kind of goes from them being in like their newsroom office to them being out on the street getting footage uh, or, or photos of different celebrities. And sometimes the celebrities are cool with it. Usually they're not super impressed that they're having their photos taken or being followed around with a camera. As you may imagine, uh, sometimes some things get weird. So, but TMZ is actually cited as one of the news sites and news shows that actually breaks a lot of really important stories in the tabloid world, in the celebrity gossip world. And they're actually seen as pretty credible if their approach of how they get their information is not exactly, as we said, the most ethical. They are known as, again, people who get the, get the good stories these days. TMZ, uh, for example, just recently uh, talking about Aaron Carter's death. 
and uh, circumstances surrounding that. Yeah, there's a lot of good shit on TMZ right now. I won't go through it all. The Aaron Carter thing is enough, I think. R.I.P. Aaron Carter, by the way. That's very sad. R.I.P. fucking takeoff. Like, um, man, that one, that one fucked me up. I, I, I just have to do a side note on that. That happened. I didn't realize how, how invested I was in Migos until I heard this news. It actually, like, made me very emotional. I don't really know how to feel about that. Same with, and same with Aaron Carter, because I kind of grew up with Backstreet Boys and with Aaron Carter in my life, and just, I, I was sort of aware of his issues, like, and then, of course, be, celebrities going to rehab and having drug problems and things like that are a huge goldmine for tabloids. So, anything that they can find out about a celebrity looking strung out, looking drunk, stoned, uh, acting belligerent in public, those are all, like, huge stories for a tabloid. Um, people who read these magazines, they want to see, for a lot of times, a celebrities not doing so well. Um, or there's another popular sort of thing that they'll run in tabloids about, you know, celebrities just running their daily errands, and because they want to blend in and not have anyone recognize them generally, or maybe they're just at home kind of bumming around, they're not wearing, like, the fanciest clothes, and it's kind of like us celebrities, they're just like us position that way but it's kind of like it there's sort of a weird um like schadenfreude moment there because it's like we know that their celebrities aren't like us but to see them just like that for just a little bit gives us like that little bit of joy to kind of see them not perfect not all made up in the nicest outfit we get to see that little peek into them just being a normal person for a second and we 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 like seeing them be normal because it reminds us that, that they're not so great, I guess, in a way. That they that they have imperfections. Part of part of gossip again is is generally it's got like a sour sort of note to it, right? You're sharing information because you kind of want to talk shit about somebody. It's gossip isn't generally like very positive. It's usually you're talking about someone or something in order to spread negative information or stories about them, not usually positive. So the celebrities are just like us. It's kind of like a two-faced sort of thing. It's, it's, it's kind of trying to make the, the reader or the viewer feel better about themselves as, a, as a, like the common fucking peasant in the world of the celebrity royalty, or even the real royalty. If, in the case of some tabloids, but then it also gets uh, gets to allow the reader or the viewer to look down on these people who are on these pedestals, reminding them that they're like us makes them shit, which is we're kind of like making fun of ourselves, really. But the viewer and the reader don't really see it that way. They see it as like, for once, you're not the great person that you think you are. And we get to all share in that kind of little smugness of trying to enjoy the fact that you are have, have been relegated to the realm of normal person once again. So there's a lot of different ways that 
tabloids and paparazzi can cross the line on these sorts of things, though, in terms of going out of their way to get a photo or get a video or put a mic in a in a celebrity's face and get a sound bite. A lot of celebrities take a huge issue with um, having any sort of children involved or any of their staff, like because a lot of these celebrities have teams of staff. So they try to make it very clear to paparazzi that they do not want them to have any unsolicited photos or video of a child, of a minor, or of people who, anybody who didn't consent to be in the video and who, it's not really about them, it's about the, the main celebrity, so don't include someone who didn't ask to be there in this recording or, or photo. And, again, like, certain times they can have a conversation with these different reporters and paparazzi, but a lot of times they don't listen. And they're just trying to get their story and be in people's face and kind of, they're, they're almost looking for something reactionary to happen. So what, what does sometimes happen is that the celebrity is going to start freaking out, going to start talking back, maybe do say or do something in the moment that they shouldn't, or, you know, maybe it's, it's, maybe it's warranted, maybe it's justified, but that maybe they shouldn't have made that decision in the moment. Like, for example, punch out a, a cameraman or camera woman or something. So that's a big thing. Um, there have been some celebrities who have actually taken the tabloids and the paparazzi to court. And uh, Carol Burnett's a very famous example. Um, she ended up taking the National Enquirer to court, suing them in, in the 70s because they tried to run a story about how she was like drunk and belligerent or on drugs or something at a political event. And she basically was shut it down and was like, that's completely not true. And now I'm coming for your ass. So, because Carol Burnett don't play. <laughs> and if you know anything about Carol Burnett, she's a very outspoken person and uh, very protective. So I think it makes sense that she would do this. Other people who have gone after paparazzi um, include Richard Simmons, Dr. Phil even did at one point. I believe Brad Pitt did as well. There are certain times where, like, Brangelina, for example, they, they like to play up with the paparazzi. They like to have a little back and forth with them to try and be funny. Uh, not all celebrities are this... Uh, oh, I think Reese Witherspoon was the other person because um, they were trying to get too close to Reese Witherspoon to take pictures of her child. And uh, a Jennifer Aniston, I think, was the other person because they got, they got pictures of Jennifer topless or nude and they went after the, the people who got those photos for that because they were like, why the hell are you taking naked photos of me? Like, what the fuck? This has gone too far. They've got um, other different things where, like, people taking it a little bit too far. We'll talk a little bit about two very famous celebrities, famous people, and their... their unfortunate sort of reaction and, and a kind of tragic conclusions when it comes to tabloids and paparazzi. In addition to, uh, the, without even um, talking about them specifically, um, there's one more thing that kind of ties into their experience, which is uh, slut-shaming and, ooh, you know what, that was my dryer going off. 
what I'm going to do, since this looks like it's going to be turning into another possibly three-hour episode, I'm going to take another quick short break to use the washroom again and check my laundry. We'll come back and we'll talk about our final big two celebrities, and then we will finish the conclusion of this episode. So I will return shortly. Be right back. Bobos. What a handsome boy. Hello. Oh, I'm just waiting for me in the bed. That's really cute. Sorry guys, I had to give my cat a little smooch there. He waiting for me. He just sleeping over on the bed. Just waiting for his mummy to be finished her silly thing. I see you there, my boy. I'm almost done, okay? Oh, he's so cute. He's being very cuddly. More and more cuddly as the cold weather sets in, which I'm very happy about. And he started sleeping in his little cat bed again, which I'm very, it's very cute. So, yeah, very happy about that, too. So, let's wrap it up. I think you guys probably already know where we're going with this particular end of the episode with the last two people I'm going to talk about. And mm. no, it's not Kanye, even though we did mention him earlier. And Kanye is definitely one of those people who does not deal with paparazzi and reporters from tabloids well. Um, usually ends in some kind of breakdown. And in that, in that sort of situation, I think, again, a, a little bit founded his reaction because a lot of as I mentioned before, paparazzi and reporters may take the cross the line and cross a lot of boundaries that they shouldn't be crossing. But yeah, he definitely is, does not deal with that very well. So we're continuing on uh, just with the... Again, this would be... Uh, the, in the time we're talking about, we're talking about kind of when, you know, E-Talk Entertainment Tonight, uh, Perez Hilton, uh, shows like that were kind of... Uh, shows and blogs, internet blogs were very popular, as well as you know your your In Touch, your your Us Weekly, your People Magazine, all of those sort of news news um, outlets reporting on different celebrities. We talked. About, I, I did mention briefly the the slut shaming and fat shaming that was a big part of tabloid culture in the '90s and the 2000s. They seem to focus a lot on women, celebrities, um, behaving badly. Very famously, the sort of, uh, the Y2K kind of girl clique that sort of came about that consisted of Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, Kim Kardashian, uh, and I believe Britney Spears was in it at one point. Um, and Nikki Hilton, Paris's sister was also involved in that, uh, Nicole Richie, who went on to do The Simple Life with Paris Hilton, and then a few other people who kind of came and went within that circle. But for a l really long time, that was like the tabloids had a field day with them, because they were always doing something s sensational, they were always doing something messy, and, uh, just sort of like behavior that the society deemed was not typical of the type of teenagers that they were coming from the families they came from. When when you think about it, a lot of teenagers who weren't famous were probably 
having similar experiences, but it just wasn't kind of on camera for the whole world to see, at least not quite yet. I mean, with social media, that became a little bit more of a, a possibility, but that's something that you're kind of like putting out there yourself. It's not like you're being followed around constantly to have every minute detail of your life recorded or photographed. And also you're not doing it on kind of an unlimited budget with fancy clothes, driving fancy cars, and going to fancy parties. So that's a whole other difference between, you know, celebrities, they're not just like us. They are very much not us at that point. We need to acknowledge that. So they they had this sort of unique sort of space that the, these girls were living in, these like teenagers and 20-something girls and women, where they were kind of existing in a place, a lot of them, where they could behave a certain way, and it was being frowned upon, yet encouraged at the same time, because it's what was making the tabloids money. The, their, their sort of normal coming-of-age experience kind of paired with, I think, their increased lack of inhibitions and readiness to kind of perform exactly what the tabloids in society wanted them to at a moment's notice. Um, I think they really kind of bought into their own their own image that they had had put out there by tabloid media. So yeah, there were, there were instances where we had uh, people dancing on tables, people showing up to events with no underwear on, again, showing them being under the influence of drugs and alcohol, uh, driving recklessly in cars, being seen with various different love interests, etc., etc. So that was like a huge thing. And then it got sort of to the point where then we, which is leading into our next two examples, the two biggies, uh, not Biggie and Tupac, but the another, other two biggies, is that we're, we're kind of looking past the personal issues and problems that these people might be experiencing, and we're, we're kind of just f- hoping that we don't see them as real people, because we'd rather just point and laugh at or clutch our pearls at their antics and, and their problematic, destructive behavior, which you really should be intervening with and helping. Uh, and then usually by the time we realize we should have done that, it can be too late. Thankfully, you know, Kim and, and Paris and Lindsay all kind of made it out of that situation. You know, Lindsay had a bit of a tough time there, but she seems okay now. And, um, but, you know, Britney Spears, which who we'll talk about in a second, was not really so lucky. And they say she's so lucky. <laughs> she's a star. Such a good song. Actually, that's like one of her one of her greatest songs, Britney Spears. Lucky is a great is a banger. It's a banger, and kind of topical as to what we're talking about right now. So that's kind of funny. But I'm gonna I'm gonna leave Britney Spears for a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the definition of paparazzi of what that is because I haven't touched on that yet, and I'm also going to talk about uh, Princess Diana first and foremost, before we move to Britney Spears, kind of just to try and keep things in chronological order. So paparazzi is an Italian term referring to the plural form of uh, paparazzo or paparazza, which are the male and female respectively versions of the, like the singular terms. Paparazzi is referring to kind of the 
I guess, imagined collective of, I guess, a group of photographers or and or videographers who follow around famous people and um, then uh, after they record or, or take their photos, they would then sell that resulting media for money to make a living. The word paparazzi is a um, onomatopoeia sort of word. It's sort of, it's supposed to sound it's supposed to mean what it kind of sounds like. The term paparazzi was actually um, originally popularized by Fellini, I believe it said here. Yeah, in La Dolce Vita. They describe paparazzi as kind of the sound of the of the whirring of the cameras and the flashing of the bulbs and sort of the presence of the people themselves kind of mimicking uh, the hovering of like a a parasitic insect. Um, In this case, it would be a mosquito. But it can also refer to just kind of the the repetitive sound of the like the shutter of the camera and the flash bulbs and and all of that stuff and kind of just like the general hum that you, and, and like noise that you get from like you know paparazzi shouting out questions and talking to each other and things like that uh paparazzi have been around for a pretty long time but they have had prominence outside of course of italy um the term is now kind of just come to be used by everybody in terms of uh, media to refer to kind of a rogue independent photographer. Maybe they're contracted out or maybe they just happen to offer their services to this one paper this one time. Uh, they're, they'll be, we're willing to do anything to get a story, no matter how shady or unethical it is, whether it borders on harassment or stalking. They don't really care as long as they get their story. So paparazzi have gained this reputation for being very cold and uh, indifferent to celebrities' protests that they don't want them around, very invasive, asking um, rude personal questions a lot of the time, uh, getting in people's face with cameras and recording devices, and then taking those uh, without the consent or agreement uh, a lot of the time of the people that they're the subject of, of their media is. So it's a big issue that came up recently, but there is a big, a couple of big incidents that kind of made people realize that perhaps the paparazzi is doing more harm than good and that we need to have some more laws and rules in place referencing where, what lines they can and can't cross when it comes to celebrities. Because there's one thing about getting your story and, and trying to do your job, but if it's at the expense of someone's safety or like a, an extreme invasion of privacy, then that's a completely different thing. So we're going to talk first about Princess Diana. Um, this kind of goes back into the slut shaming and fat shaming. More for Princess Diana, the, the body shaming. But that, that was a lot that she kind of brought on herself. But the, the one issue of the of the tabloids that they had was that they were constantly kind of bringing up Diana's everything from her personality to her weight to, um, again, of course, subsequently the fact that Charles was cheating on her with Camilla. Um, and then when she left that relationship, um, kind of, you know, everything from the revenge dress to, um, 
her, whether or not she's a good mother, her new relationship with Jodi Al-Fayed, and, um, and basically following them around, trying to capture every aspect of their life. They were, you know, seen on a yacht together in the bathing suit and everything. And then meanwhile, Charles was still doing his own thing. Diana provided a lot of material for tabloids, but they, it also um, helped to, unfortunately, highlight an issue within the tabloid culture and the tabloid, just the way uh, their, their, their style of journalism which was having these paparazzi go out and accost everyone, basically, in order to get their story. So, in 1997, Diana was in a car that ended up crashing in a tunnel in France, in Paris, France. The verdict is still very much out on how exactly it happened and who's to blame. A lot of people do say that of who should be held accountable for this are the are the paparazzi who were present in the tunnel. Uh, allegedly, I mean, they have different cameras and stuff, so they have they have evidence of somebody with the the camera and everything being in the tunnel with them at the time of her death. And they a lot of people blame paparazzi for both causing the car crash and also delaying the hospital visit, delaying her getting to the hospital in time. So there's a lot of um, animosity that Britons have, a lot of Canadians have as well, I'm sure probably a ton of Americans, everybody else around the world, um, because Diana was so universally loved. It's probably very safe, safe to say that it was people from all over the world who were thinking this, like she was the people's princess to have this happen because of the result of people constantly following her around her entire life since she got um, married to Prince Charles, something was bound to happen, and then this time they kind of just took it too far. Of course, there are the conspiracy theories and everything, that it was an inside job and the royal family planned to kill her, and, all. and there's there was theories about how Princess Diana died, there's everything from the driver being intoxicated, being on drugs, and speeding, to um, the Fayed family. Oh, sorry, say Muhammad Al Fayed was a, was the father of Dodi Fayed, who uh, said that the, it was an inside job that MI6 took her out. But um, a lot of people attributed it to the pursuing paparazzi at the time, which forced the driver to try and speed into the tunnel to get away from them. The The initial verdict the jury returned for this was unlawful killing. So, and, and no paparazzi, as far as I can see here, ever got charged or convicted of anything to do with her death. So... There's a lot of people who, after that, called out the tabloids and called out all the paparazzi and basically said they were guilty of murder and that they shouldn't be engaging in these sorts of practices that could result in a, an injury or a fatality. So this was around the time where the opinion about paparazzi changed and sort of the laws around what they were and weren't allowed to do started to be considered. They are kind of just out here doing whatever, and a lot of times it wasn't taking anybody's safety or health into account. 
Um, which brings me to my next subject, which again, like Diana was not doing well before that. And everyone had seemed to have something to say about it. And then she's out here living her best life. People still have something to say about it. And they are trying to get stories on her right up until she died. And it's like there's just no, nobody's being held, held up in any kind of court of law, literal or figurative, for their actions. And they're allowed to kind of just keep going on saying whatever they want about everybody. Um, this leads me to Miss Britney, Miss Britney Spears. And uh, there's quite a few things I didn't really know about the whole breakdown with her in the beginning um, and, and how the tabloids kind of spun that and, and how the paparazzi did contribute a lot to her, her mental breakdown. So what happened with Britney Spears? So as, as many of you may remember, Britney was dating Justin Timberlake briefly. And this was back when she was still pretty young. So I'm just going to look up a quick uh, year check on that one. A lot of people speculate that the, it was not so much the the pressure of the fame or like the exposure to paparazzi or anything or like having kids even that kind of set off this mental break with her. It was actually back when they were dating that this whole issue first took place. So Timberlake and Spears split in 2002 and there were a lot of rumors and there's a lot of speculation going around as to why the relationship didn't work out. Brittany didn't say anything about what happened. Justin, however, seemed to kind of speak out right away and, uh, well, if only to say, like, I, I respect her and I, I'm still going to support her as a friend. And they, like, Brittany asked him not to discuss the details of the breakup. But then very soon after that, there was a lot of implication, including by Justin Timberlake himself, a lot of people would say, that she had cheated on him. And that um, she was, like, this huge slut. And that's why, that's why it didn't work out between the two of them. And if you remember, Justin released the Crimea River video that everyone said was basically about Britney. So, it, very, very recently, yeah, this was, I think, back in, back in the spring of this year, and uh, there, people are kind of bringing it up again now, uh, Britney Spears called out Justin Timberlake, on Instagram for basically using her for clout and not really being there for her in, in the midst of everything that happened. He used her name, referencing her in interviews and whatever, and actually playing into a lot of the slut-shaming and um, kind of uh, revealing that they had slept together. Because back then, I think there was still this huge like expectation that pop stars... Um, I don't know, there was like this weird Christian-infused sort of rhetoric revolving Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake about how they were going to wait till marriage to have sex, and then it was revealed that they had had sex and that uh, neither of them were virgins, but it was like implied that Britney not being a virgin was this like horrible, skanky-ass thing, but Justin was like this player and ladies' man, because that's usually always the way it goes in terms of the sexual double standard. So the breakup, coupled with how 
poorly Justin and everyone else around dealt with it in terms of putting kind of him as the the hero and the the jilted lover and her as like this kind of Jezebel who's just sleeping with everyone and like and even even if she was like who gives a shit but but also not not just that but the infidelity on her part which was not confirmed in in any way by anybody that everyone just kind of took to, as fact so a lot of people say that that incident paired with everything else that happened in her life after that is what made her lose her shit. So Justin was like very, that breakup really fucked with her in a big way. So after that, we see her, you know, like marrying Kevin Federline, having her children, engaging in what a lot of people would say was inappropriate parenting decisions regarding her children, like driving with them in the, you know, with her, one of their kids on her lap in the front seat. Oh, while she's driving with no seatbelt. And I don't think, I'm pretty sure the kid didn't have any clothes on. That whole sort of thing. Not, not a good look, Britt. Not a good look. Um, a whole bunch of other random things that kind of were, again, implying that she let herself go. They're slut shaming her and now they're fat shaming her. Saying she's not a good parent, not a good mother. And, uh, while Justin is, like, riding this high and like releasing all this all this work and like having a great career Brittany is now not having an active career and she's throwing herself into home life to try and be like this dom domestic figure now and we can all sort of slowly start to see that this is causing her the responsibility and sort of the all the shit that she still has to deal with is causing her to kind of spiral the tabloids, like, just take sort of every opportunity of something bad happening to Brittany to kind of just shit all over her. It doesn't make for the greatest news, but, you know, people are still paying attention and they're still, you know, laughing and pointing the fingers as usual. So, I believe they said it was 2007 when the incident took place. So, Brittany Spears... Meltdown, I believe. There's several timelines of the meltdown that you can actually go back and look over how it, um, it, it all went down. Britney Spears didn't shave her head to in a fit of rage. She did it so there would be no way to trace her drug use, the lawyer. This is from the New York Post. That's the line from the New York Post. Uh, Cosmo even chimes in on this. The upsetting reason Britney shaved her head in 2007. Um, there's a documentary, of course, that kind of, they reference that the U.S. sign Britney Spears reveals devastating reason she shaved her head during meltdown. They have articles about the whole meltdown and the shaved head as late as 2021 in this list of articles. So this is still, a, like, a, apparently a hot news story for people right up until now. Up until only a few years ago. So, if people don't have enough to talk about when it comes to Britney, and you're going back to the meltdown over and over again. This is where, um, it wasn't until many years later after the meltdown that the whole Free Britney movie, Free Britney movie, Free Britney movement started, but... 
in the time that the whole meltdown happened until then, uh, this is the, around the time when her family decided to put her in the conservatorship because they were concerned for her well-being. So I believe after a stint in rehab, uh, they sent her to a counseling thing, and then they took her basically um, to be served by the courts as being under the conservatorship, which resulted in her having basically every aspect of her life controlled by her family up until recently when the conservatorship was finally overturned. What I found very interesting about the whole research into the whole early tabloid stuff was just, like, how how little people seemed to care that what they were saying about Britney Spears was, like, going to be extremely damaging. People just really did not give a shit back then. Um, there's a famous quote by Perez Hilton. Talk, I forget who he's talking to. But um, they're talking about his coverage of Britney Spears. And he says, Britney Spears being bad is good for my business. So it really just seems like just so transactional with some of these reporters and bloggers and paparazzi. It's very much like you, you're not registering the emotions this person's feeling. You're not looking into the reasons why they might be acting a certain way. You're just seeing them as a, as a business boost for you. Then a lot, of, a lot of the people during the meltdown stage... Um, where it was, like, Britney sporting a bold, new, bald head look and, like, kind of just making fun of the fact that she just shaved her entire head, like, in public at a random place and is, like, now attacking a, a car with a golf umbrella. And this is all just becoming memes and it's becoming, uh, like, a joke. And where does that leave us in terms of solutions for how to help her? Where does that leave Brittany in terms of feeling like she can't go anywhere to ask for help because people are just going to make fun of her and point at her pictures in the tabloids? There's a lot, I think, that we could have done for a lot of celebrities, especially especially with Britney Spears as a recent example, um, because of trying to can just continue to capitalize despite having this like very tragic moment just being staring you right in the face. And all you can think about is, like, what catchy headline you can put on this photo. And just how bad you can make her look. Like, some people that would not have been able to come back from that sort of public humiliation. And, thankfully, Britney Spears um, survived this conservatorship and now she's back. But, yeah, it kind of makes me wonder, just, like, back in the day, like, how many people would actually stand for that sort of thing? A surprising number, I guess. And so... Now that we have the Free Britney movement and social media has kind of, again, changed the face of how we get information about celebrities and how, how much we believe that's true and what's fake. And then, of course, on top of that, then uh, taking problematic people to task is a lot easier now that you can just send them messages or make comments on their posts at the click of a button and then everybody in the world can see it. So with the tabloids taking accountability back in the day was a lot more difficult, I feel, because you've got less chance of something getting out that other people are going to find out about. And, uh, you know, papers themselves are extremely powerful and manipulative, so it's hard to go up against a a big-name paper especially. And all they can do is just turn around and then write a bunch of lies about you, and a lot of people will believe it's truth. 
So, Britney Spears, uh, if you want to look into the whole head shave thing, I'm sure there's a bunch in these articles, a bunch of different reasons as to why she did it. But I think at this point we could all agree the reason isn't really important. It's the... It's, uh... What, how, how do we then act... How, how can we... How can we, um... Kind of talk to Britney Spears and get her to act a certain way or like with, with you know open communication and things like that or how can we as people realize where we could actually have done something instead of just sitting back and laughing at someone who's clearly having a mental break and needs somebody to support her in that moment so then basically her family just immediately putting her under the conservatorship it proving that it's like, okay, well, we're not acknowledging you're having a, you, you need to have any sort of mental health treatment or conversation with us or anybody. We're just going to label you as crazy. We're going to put you under lock and key. And we're going to, we're going to basically just, you have to listen to what we have to say. Oh, but you can still perform. You're still sane enough that you can perform and make us money. But all that other crap, don't even talk about that shit. So that's, it's so frustrating to talk about Bernie Spears in terms of tabloids because like I feel like they just they did her so dirty and back then we just they didn't really know any better we didn't really have a, again a recipe for me too and and free Britney and uh, and and what what constitutes is going too far because I think we were still very much in the era of like let's just push the envelope right off the table let's see how let's see how far we can get it you know so that's really a, a takeaway from from inviting rich and famous people in and then basically like you you turn from a fan to just like an angry mob you 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 would be like the first person lined up to see them get hung at the public execution if you had the choice to do that but that's why it's 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 also kind of speaks to again looking into somebody's life and, and trying to get that secret information, it's not really a secret anymore, right? Like, it's all over the place. It's, like, this has been a known fact that she's been acting unhinged for months. So, like, at what point do we say, okay, this is new and exciting content, and then at what point do we actually realize and become better people and go, okay, listen, I don't think this is a joke anymore, and this person needs fucking help. So... That's the same thing that we can say about a whole bunch of different celebrities. We've got, uh, I think we've got through everything here, but that's sort of like what I wanted to end on was Britney Spears, because that's, I guess, the most recent example of some of the things we were talking about in terms of coverage of, coverage in tabloids and who we decide to hold higher than everybody else, what regard we hold people in, things like that. So I really think that um, it's a lesson. I think Britney Spears is a big lesson in um, remembering your hum humanity despite your your insistence that you're just doing your job and following orders. A lot of people say those things, and gen that's, that's usually not a good sign. That's usually a sign that what you're doing is completely sus and probably shouldn't be doing it. But I also believe in kind of like open communication and and making sure that people get the help they need. And so I really don't think in that moment, Britney Spears was really getting the help that she needed. And I also found it very funny that the per, one, one of the people who said he was always going to be there for her no matter what happens, Justin Timberlake, was fucking nowhere to be found. 
So, yeah. And I feel like that's a good place to end the podcast today because um, I think the future of the whole thing is basically... Um, I don't want to say that we should ban tabloids altogether, but I do think that there are so many problematic elements that I don't know if it can thrive as its own thing if we take all of those out. The same question remains, should we really have those rules and regulations in place for tabloids? I kind of agree in certain places. Excuse me, guys. Sorry, that was my my laundry again. And signaling the end of the episode as well. Um, I think that basically when you look at, if you're looking at a news story and it's, it's robbing you of, of all your compassion or, or you have no, or, or they're, they're actively kind of preventing you from, from making an informed stance on something, whether it's through political leanings or focusing on one celebrity over another or it's uh, promoting a message of fat shaming, slut shaming, ableism, things like that, racism, bigotry, what have you. I think that that is where the tabloid game already relies on so many, so much falsehood, so many lies, and so much manipulation that it's hard to, once you're drawn in, like it's almost like a cult, really, it's almost like brainwashing. And then you kind of start to forget that the people within all the pages of this tabloid are actual, could actually be human beings. Maybe the story didn't exactly happen the way that they said it was going to happen. Or, you know, you've got, you've got lots of people you can get, get advice from in terms of, you know, are things that you see in tabloids real or not. And if they never want to go outside and do shit, then that's not all of us. You can't just, like, label somebody a problematic person and then lock them away as punishment or withhold things from them. Like, it's always possible to have a meaningful conversation with anyone, including our our future generations, our children. And I think that we need to, like, educate them on, you know, what some of our media consumption was back in the day. And maybe some of it wasn't exactly, doesn't really hold up to the test of time. A lot of it is extremely problematic. So... That's sort of a thing with tabloids too. Tabloids c- could do very well with um, having some self-reflection and realizing how much they are contributing to the problem versus how much they're just reporting. And I think that in, in a lot of cases with tabloids, they are part of the problem. But as long as you're working towards fixing those issues and those problems, then you'll probably end up you'll probably end up with a a better understanding and um, a lot more people who are who are sympathetic or empathetic to you because that's very important. I think that um, as somebody who absorbed a lot of um, a lot of that sort of tabloid culture growing up is someone who really likes to sort of the elements of gossip and trash TV very much. I think that it's it's something I've had to kind of look back on. And uh, I have distanced myself a lot from the sort of reality TV and uh, TV reporting in the last little while. And I'd like to keep it that way. Um, so I think that I think that in terms of what the ordinary person can take away from this, it's that 
to figure out the where the line which where reality stops and entertainment starts and where like where you should be and and whether you can kind of straddle the middle line and then just focused on I think remembering that even though they're celebrities even though they're politicians and you know other billionaires and famous people and yes they can get on that can get on our nerves I I totally can see that they're human beings too not all of them are terrible not all of them have control over the stories that get out not all of them are going to be believed by certain people who read these tabloids ever so so, um I think we have to remember that at the end of the day the people in these videos and in in print and and on TV here are human beings. A story and a scoop should never go before having respect and compassion for a fellow human being. So, I think that's really the only thing people that are dealing with tabloids should really remember and it will probably serve you very well if you follow those tips. I don't want to tell anybody what to do, but, you know, as we've shown here, the tabloid game can be pretty ruthless, and you you can be a tough individual all you want, but it might get in a little crack and it might affect you. Excuse me. It might affect you more than you know. And that's why I think it's important to to focus on your... Focus on, on identifying humanity among among the, the the quick cash grabs and the maybe fleeting 15 minutes of notoriety that you get from doing tabloids. So with that, sorry, just thinking about Britney Spears and stuff and Princess Diana. Very sad, very sad. I hope that Britney continues to get the help she needs and continues to stand firm about her conservatorship being over. And I wish her all the best. Uh, To all you tabloid lovers out there, uh, don't spend too much money on Weekly World News at the grocery store. I'll be watching. And uh, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe to Fantasy Tavern Podcast. And that is available. The social medias are on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And we have new video and audio coming out through RSS in the next couple days, just over the weekend. That'll be available for streaming very soon, once I finish doing some editing over the weekend. And, uh don't have to do anything any again maybe so maybe sunday i'll drop the episode um it's good to be back hopefully no more sicky time that really sucks please everybody stay safe out there wear your mask wash your hands take um keep your distance all the things that you are probably already doing and should just continue doing um make sure you keep your homes well ventilated and sanitized uh and just avoid going out in public unless you have to absolutely have to and if you do, just make sure you wear a mask, bring sanitizer, and you should be good to go. Let's make sure that we stay happy and healthy going into this holiday season. And I thank you all so much once again for tuning in. I hope to also be bringing back some special guests very soon for some holiday episodes, so stay tuned for that. I hope you enjoyed this week. And until next time, we'll catch you on the flip side in the Fantasy Tavern. Bye! Bye.